We need the compassion and love to act, the selfless action to, to help the world and others. But the other wing to the bird, we have to intelligently apply that love and action because indiscriminate charity causes more problems than it creates. This is why, you know, vast majority of charity money you can model is throw it down the tube. Indiscriminate charity is, is not the solution. So we, we have to have the love and compassion, but we have to have the intelligence. Welcome to Talking Apes. Love, empathy, privilege, those aren't words you generally hear floating up out of the trenches of conservation battles. But for my next guest, Leif Cox, he believes we have to see beyond the mere mechanics of conservation. For over 30 years, Leaf has shared an intimate connection with what some primatologists call the second most intelligent animal on Earth, the orangutan. Culture, not just genetics, has shaped who the red ape is, and Leaf feels he can only refer to these fellow sentient beings as persons. And by that, he means persons in the most human sense of the word. Leaf Cox is the founder and president of the Orangutan Project an Australian-based NGO which seeks to protect all three critically endangered orangutan species and their rapidly disappearing habitats on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra. For Leaf, his devotion to orangutans and the conservation of their rainforest home is one and the same, but his pursuit of solutions is equal passion and pragmatism. In Leaf's own words, simplistic solutions, like banning palm oil, are great for marketing and fundraising, but they don't really work in the real world. On this Talking Apes, we'll explore the complexity and nuance of saving a species and an ecosystem on which we all depend. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Well, I think I should say good morning, Leaf, and welcome to Talking Apes, since we're uh, half a world away from one another. You're in Perth, Australia, is that correct? Yep, that's, that's correct. Um, yeah, and... In lockdown here, um, yeah, so trying to manage the projects and our outcomes um, from my home office. Um, yeah, but hopefully it won't be too long till we're, we're back out in the field. Well, see, let's see. You're so you're uh, you know you're about half a day a, ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So when we save the planet, you will know a half a day ahead of us. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> so you'll be able to get in touch yeah. with us and let us know yeah. we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, actually, that is um, that is kind of the direction of this this episode of Talking Apes that I'd like to head. I'd like to talk about solutions mm-hmm. to to some of the problems that we face, and I think it's interesting that you, I mean your focus is on orangutans, and um, because they connect to uh, ecosystems and networks mm-hmm. that really do, I think, emblematically. Um, shine a light on how we have to take care of this planet in general. And part of the reason that I was excited to talk to you is you have 30, maybe over 30 years experience, not only with orangutans, but seeing this incredible animal from sort of two sides of a human experience. I mean, you were you initially were a zookeeper working with orangutans. So you saw how people react to species in that context and then uh, over the course of your life you've you've evolved into you know a conservationist and activist i guess you would say um and and passionate i don't know if humanist is the right word a passion passionate speciesist i think because you you seem to be passionate about humans and other species with equal excitement and and verve but when we knew we were going to have you on there was there was something I'd read many, many years ago. I read your book, um, Orangutans, A Battle for Survival. And what's interesting is over the past 20 years since that book was published, I feel like it's become not a battle for of orangutans for survival, but a, a battle for all of our survival. Can you, can you just kind of talk about uh, orangutans and their 
place in the environment and how that how that is so emblematic of of a planet that we're trying to save. Yeah, the main thing is always understand we're all connected, and you know the the idea, the old paradigms of our tribal mind of us against them and short term thinking are just destroying us. We have to kind of outgrow that natural mind, which, which fix us into this ex- destructive, exploitative way of interacting with the world. And so saving the orangutans and their rainforest environment is destroying the planet, is destroying local economies. And, and so it's no longer this idea about, you know, do we, you know, do we sacrifice some economic um, um, gain um, to help this endangered species or, or this idea of altruism, we sacrifice them for others. In the long term, it's not wildlife versus um, people or the environment versus economy. It's about getting a win-win situation for every species on the planet. Um, and so orangutans um, and the other megafauna which share our planet, they're the first ones which are going to tip off the edge because they require the largest um, um, area to support minimum sustainable populations. And so one of the things we have to do to get us through this extinction crisis and into a planet that's actually sustainable in the long term, we have to make sure during this most critical period of human history, the next 10 years, the most critical period in human history, we have to particularly make sure that these populations of megafauna can get through this and out the other side um, because there's so much key to the biodiversity, carbon storage and functioning of these ecosystems that is going to be required also for future human populations to survive in the long term. That's interesting that you should say 10 years because it was actually about 10 years ago um, a bit over that that I listened to a conversation or, or a a talk that Jane Goodall was doing, and she talked about she thought within the next ten years, if we didn't change something, that you know, great apes on this planet would be nearly extinct. And yet here we are, ten years later, and there are still forests, and there are still apes. And so, while those of us who are out in that environment and intimate with it would say, yeah, things are are stressed and are going in the wrong direction, I think for the average person, they would say, well, wait a second, there's still tropical rainforests on this planet. Mm-hmm. There's still great apes on this planet. So are, are, aren't you guys kind of ringing alarm bells that aren't necessary to be rung at this point? Sure, sure. And look, when Jane said that, um, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't sitting on our hands for the last 10 years. And so considerable effort by hell of a number of people have meant that we're still up the creek without a paddle but we're still not over the waterfall yet. And, and, and that's only been done by a tremendous amount of effort by many people. So, you know, the prediction of Jane would be right if we did nothing. But luckily, we have done something. Not enough yet. Um, now, the reason why I say the next 10 years is the most important period in human history is because when you talk to a climate scientist, they say, this 10 years will decide the future of the planet. They're not saying after 10 years, suddenly the world is going to explode, right? But what we're seeing is, is after, if we don't change things now, the, the ecosystems will spiral out of, um, in, into oblivion. And so you get this slow progression into a disastrous um, future globe. Um, for example, let's say, and I'll take the rainforest as a, as a particular example, and this is why we, we're saying the same 10 years because interconnected. An example is if you reduce the rainforest, you reduce the amount of rain, okay? Then the rainforest becomes less productive, so it can support less biodiversity and it stores less carbon. There's more droughts, more fires, which reduces more rainforest. This creates climate change, which means there's more El Nemo, i.e. The, the annual rare annual changes become... Um, more frequent, again, providing more droughts, more dry area, and again, destroys more rainforest, which destroys more biodiversity. The orangutans go extinct. The rainforest reduces further. So you get these feedback loops, you know, which which then spirals you in and you can't stop it anymore. And and climate change is going to do the same thing. 
And this is why this is so important. So we're not saying um, in 10 years time, if we don't do nothing, which we're not going to do, we're going to do something, there's going to be no orangutans. But it may be, for example, that those populations and those ecosystems are no longer self-sustainable. So in, in the long term, they will go extinct. They're not of the right type, shape and size of the rainforest, the populations aren't large enough, so they're eventually spiraling to extinction. And that interaction with the global um, environment of climate change will actually just help that acceleration um, down. And so interacting of climate change, local environment and endangered species all work together to spiral us into extinction. So we have both the uh, obligation and the privilege living in the most important time in human history to basically get off our butts now and, and, and make it count. And, and, um, and that's a challenge for this generation. Future generations may be given a basket case of an economy, basket case of an environment, and, and which, which won't be, they won't be able to recover from. We can turn it around. It's our generation which has the obligation to do that. Well, it, there's a couple of things you said there that are really interesting. One is privilege. I don't think people that that's an interesting word to use in this um I, I don't think people think about that about this I think it's they, they stumbling on my words here because I, I think they think that it is a dire situation and an obligation, but to think of it as a privilege is maybe a, an interesting way to think about this opportunity to to make a better world, to to or make a world less bad. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is a privilege to live in this time. From perspective, is the selfless work for other conscious living beings in the world is the most beneficial thing for our own selves. It's a win-win situation. All these things are win-win situations. So if you become less selfish and you're working diligently for the cause and help of others, and you're pitching the largest ideal that you can. Um, um, aspire to, you will live a wonderful, beautiful life, um, you know, and and so therefore it's a privilege. Um, you know, people get this idea is you know because we're sold this kind of neo-conservative capitalism, um, which has just turned us into miserable, horrible people, thinking that uh, material wealth and competition, you know, is leads to happiness. And of course, all evidence say this is actually not true. It's a selfless love um, and work for the others which makes us happy. So it's a win-win situation because I know often people come to me and say, oh, look, we're so admired of you because you've sacrificed your life and, you know, and everything, you know, all your time to help the orangutans and others. <laughs> Crazy. You know, to have that wonderful um peace of mind when your ego is sublimated and you know where it virtually disappears and and concern and love for others it's it's wonderful um to give that up for short-term name fame power and wealth it just would seem crazy and you know people who do that are the great sacrifices um so I, I, again i just think we've just been sold a pup i guess uh, and, and and where we find happiness actually in the wrong places. In fact, it's a win-win situation. Hmm. The other thing you mentioned just a second ago was um, you, you mentioned both the environment and the economics. And I, I think that's also something that's important to keep in mind with this, that those two things are tied together. I mean, we tend, we've, we've over the, the course of the years that you have been working in conservation and looking at, at orangutans, I think we've We've evolved from thinking those things are two very separate items to, to now realizing that they're connected. Could maybe it, just talk about it, that exactly. a little bit? The, a good economy and a good environment are the same decision making. So a, a good economist will protect the environment and you will say, well, why do we destroy the environment for economic gain? Well, it's short term economics. You know, it's uh, what they do is they, they uh, compress um, profits from the many to the few, from the long term to the short term, right? Um, so it's about short term profit. And the only reason that they're profitable because they can pass the true cost of production onto the powerless, the future generations, number one. Um, 
endangered species, environment, local people, and the poor people. So it's, it's an exploitative model, which is very good at making a few people very rich. Uh, but if we want an economy which is going to be prosperous and enrich everybody, um, we have to bring in long-term economics. Ultimately, I, I put this down to our human evolution, you know, back at agricultural revolution where we destroyed feminine power because where we had that balance between male thinking, which is short-term, you know, get it done quickly um, and win-lose. Win, Female power is about long-term. It's about are we all okay? the group dynamics and because we we basically kicked all the women out of the um i guess the power structure of you know of deciding what we do we have a lot of men who are very much interested in short-term solutions win-lose and competing against the other men in the other companies and they just simply are not evolved to have the insight to think that you know the better long-term solution for their children um, their, their community and the globe lies in changing the paradigm of how we approach the world. How, how does that resonate when you're out on the road talking about these issues, when you, when you push the, the sort of a, a feminine agenda uh, to, a, to a more balanced thinking and long-term approach? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's important because we, ha- I mean, we have to address the, the root of the problem, you know, and we're very good as a species of, of, of um, addressing things which is external and short term. Um, so, for example, you know, if let's say North Korea was a cause of climate change, we would have solved it in two years' time. <laughs> we, 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 we know who you are, we know where you live, and you're not us. Um, we're really bad at solving problems that we are creating, you know, from, you know, and so, um, and that's where climate change and environmental conservation, all the struggles. Um, and so we need to reform ourselves to reform the world. So that discussion, I guess, has to happen. Um, but on the flip side of that, the answer to the other half of your question is, because conservation and environmentalism is intuitively understood by the feminine mind a lot easier because it's, it's group thinking, it's long-term thinking. You know, so if I always use a um, kid, there's some wonderful men who support us, you know, and they're, they're fantastic. But I used to kid, you know, a few years ago, if I walked in the room and gave a talk and it's full of men, I'd walk out, you know, because I ain't going to get anywhere. <laughs> but it's full of women. I go, oh, right, fine. Okay. They're, they're going to understand what I'm saying. Um, um, but it, it, and I'm not, I'm not, please don't get me wrong, I'm not um, um, knocking masculinity or masculine thinking. What we need is balance. We've evolved. It's a bit like having, you know, the Senate and the lower house. These two powers in in the tribe meant that we made ultimately good decisions because these two ways of thinking bounced out to to make the appropriate decision for the tribe. We've just, after the agricultural revolution, just lost that balance, which we we need to put in place um, in order to ensure that we have a sustainable future for our children. I, I'm I'm only smiling because, uh, as I mentioned to you before we 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 jumped into the podcast, I, I lived for a few years in Australia. I spent a fair bit of that time in places like the Northern Territory and outback Queensland, and that feminine approach uh, would have had an interesting conversation in a lot of pubs in mm-hmm. in that part of Australia <laughs> because there was very very much an outback mentality there that uh, was was very different than you're talking about. I I'm interested in in your thoughts on orangutans as as apex species in this environment of of Borneo and Sumatra and how they how they represent saving this landscape. Um, I I know that a lot of of the work of the orangutan project is in Sumatra, and so if you want to you want to base it around there, that's fine too, but. How how is saving this species? Um, you know, people call them flagship species or apex species or you know the charismatic megavertebrate or whatever the the phrase might be. But for those who don't fully understand how that works in an environment system or a natural system, maybe talk about that. I I, I prefer the term umbrella species. 
And so the idea is, let's say, if I go out and, and say, look, I'm going to save the orangutans, as a large um, species that has to have a large area to survive in sustainable populations, all the um, you know, millions of other species, individuals will come along for the free ride. You don't have to have the save the monkey project or save the gibbon project or save the bear. They'll all come along for the free ride under the umbrella of orangutan conservation. So you can choose one charismatic species and, of course, help those is extremely important. But all the rest will come along under the free ride, including indigenous human populations who rely on the environmental services and the um, ecosystem for their own um, economic uh, prosperity. Um, what we actually found, actually, is um, that a few species were falling out from this umbrella of orangutan conservation, the elephant and the tiger. So we actually started the International Tiger Project, International Elephant Project, to address the particular human-elephant conflict problems that we're experiencing elephant and criminal syndicates poaching tigers, and therefore bring them under the umbrella of a, of a conservation program. And, um, and as I mentioned before, this is always a win-win situation. You know? um, so saving orangutans isn't putting orangutans before people or putting orangutans before you know, the, um, the, a, a small reptile that lives in the forest. It's about creating a framework um, which benefits all and um, we've just chosen um, the orangutan um, as the most intelligent way to, um, to communicate and uh, express our love for all living beings um, through in intelligent action um, to, to achieve a stable future for us all. So uh, you use that word intelligence a couple times right then. And how talk a little bit about the intelligence of an orangutan. I mean, you've spent all this time with them in close proximity and and looking at them further afield. Um, where where do you see the orangutan in terms of all the, the great apes, including ourselves? Um, and where does it fit into that puzzle? With there's two, two things. If you're talking about just measuring intelligence in, in human terms, they're, the, they're the, um, the only next to us, they are the most intelligent species that share our planet. They're a lot smarter than gorillas and chimpanzees and bonobos. Anybody who's worked closely, I hands-on with that species will tell you, you can't go to a great ape keeper in American zoo and say, they're going to laugh at you, say anything up but the orangutan. <laughs> Although a lot of people, because they're much more human-like and actually close to ancestors, may say the chimpanzee. But no, orangutans are the most intelligent species that, that, that share our planet. But the other aspect to us is we always measure intelligence by our own standards and values. And we do this culturally amongst human populations, measuring intelligence. There's huge cultural biases um, because, you know, um, having a large brain is the most energy, um, most cost, of, um, most costly thing to have. It makes sense while you're evolving. So, for example, a huge amount of our daily calorie intake goes and support our large brain. Yeah, and so if you're let's say a large-bodied large animal in the rainforest. Developing intelligence in the larger brain that's required to support their intelligence without use basically makes you vulnerable to extinction because you increase your calorie requirement, but there's no extra benefit. You're not increasing calories from that because of no use. So you're not suddenly going to find an orangutan who, who starts developing human-like intelligence. You'll go extinct. That's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> what it does is develop intelligence, which is most... Um, adapted to its environment, both genetically and culturally, because it's huge, because the large intelligent animals, their brain is basically programmed to culture rather than programmed by instincts, such as um, lesser intelligent animals. And so, for example, orangutans, their temporal spatial map in their ability to remember where food is, both in time and space over life distance, out exceeds human capacity enormously. And so from an orangutan's point of view, from their lifestyle, humans are dumb as all hell. <laughs> you know, they can't understand why we survive when we're so stupid. And you see, and for example, chimpanzees have, you know, have 
their own sets of intelligence, which is quite unique to them and in their way far more superior. And you can go on YouTube now and see chimpanzees in Japan that can outdo number puzzles, you know, like maybe 10 times faster than a human can. So from the chimpanzee's perspective, we're quite stupid as well. I mean, the word orangutan come, is derived from person of the forest, or sometimes people say old man of the forest or something. But And you've been quite outspoken uh, regarding the, the sort of personage quality of this, this sentient being. In fact, if, if I'm not mistaken, you were involved with the, the case in, in Argentina. Was that right? Yeah, I was an expert witness in the court case in Argentina to um, give an orangutan human rights and, and, and free from captivity. Let's talk a little bit about that because you mentioned another word, culture. And I don't think people generally think, uh, I mean, culture seems to be a, a human quality. Yeah, we, we, we often focus on culture now because um, human beings um, have been trying over many years to find out why we're so unique and, and great. Uh, unfortunately, we just got to get over ourselves. We're not that unique and we're, we're not that great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know we, we've, been ex, we've been, you know, relatively successful at ex, being exploitative um, and, and um, which will eventually fall down if we don't overcome our biology. Um, so eventually, so in, in a way, we, we have the intelligence of a, a, a rat plague or mice plague. You know? Sure, there's some short-term gains from what you're doing, but in the end, you're not going to be that successful. Um, so we have to kind of outgrow our biology. Um, but, but we focus on culture because there was, you know, man was a tool used and that made us so special. Of course, we find all sorts of animals use tools, including otters and monkeys and orangutans themselves. Um, then we say, oh, well, we have culture, and that's what makes us unique and special, you know. Um, but what we've found is, um, you know, animals such as orangutans, chimpanzees, and elephants have culture because there's actually two ways to adapt to the environment. One is by natural selection, and that's, for example, let's say you're a tiger and you have lots of offspring, you know, all genetically a little bit different over your lifetime, and then you then Nature will select which one of those offspring is most suited for the ever-changing environment. That's natural selection as we know it. Intelligent species say, actually, we've got a better way of doing this. Is We say we're going to have fewer species. They're going to be born with vacant brains, not much instinct. I'm going to have long maternal periods of learning, which is going to program the culture. And this makes each species uniquely adapted and to the ever-changing environments and far more responsive than natural selection alone. So it's an extremely successful model. So intelligence, light brain, um, long maternal learning periods. And so this is the way orangutans, elephants, and other intelligent species adapt to the environment. Only problem is this really only can happen when you have no natural predator. You know, um, once you introduce natural predator, um, the, the intelligent species spiral to extinction fairly quickly because they're investing heavily in very few offspring rather than um, investing very little in many offspring which is genetically diverse. So orangutans have a unique and beautiful culture which they pass on from generation to generation. And I myself working with many orangutans, you even see the cultural variations and family variations between family lines, how they approach things and how they, they, they do things differently. And you see populations, extremely different cultures, which develop to adapt to every unique environment. And um, as, as the same as we do. Um, and do you, do you have some examples of that? I'm, I'm curious, like what, what kinds of things have you seen that you would you classify as that adaptation, cultural adaptation in orangutans? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we see, for example, different tool use uh, in different populations, and they're using two differently. Um, and so they have a cultural way of using tools. They also have a cultural way of raising offspring, which is can be quite different between um, between groups. Because um, similarly, humans are in the same situation, um, roughly. Um, it's not not so extreme as in orangutans because we we have this mixed tribal group where the orangutans are basically come almost as single mothers within a rainforest. But predominantly, culture is passed down from to the female line, 
you know, raising the offspring and, and developing. And natural selection occurs down the male line. The males go off and do reckless behavior, especially when the young have a high death rate, you know, and the ones who survive, you know, genetically uh, pass their genes to the next generation. Whereas, uh, let's say, even with human females, this is why you don't send women to war, is because you start knocking off your women, which is, which is determining your reproductive rate, your population will go extinct pretty quick. So it's always natural to protect the women and children. Young men go off and, you know, and, and have reckless behavior and put in danger because you've got men for natural selection, women for culture. And this is actually more extreme in orangutans. So you've got your uh, male orangutans go off and you know, fight and get into mischief and, and die at a great rate. But that's fine because you only want the best to survive to pass their genes and generation. But you need every female to survive. Uh, and, and, and spend the time and effort passing on that culture from generation to generation. And it's calculated that we only lose 1% of the females in a population, the population will spiral into extinction, whether we can lose 50% of the males in a population and the population is actually very healthy. Um, so you, you see these um, cultural differences, um, biases between the sexes of, of um, what is important. Let's let's turn that then to survival, and let's talk a, a little bit about the, um, the conservation of of this this uh, this habitat and these forests, and and of course the orangutan. What maybe outline the the key issues here for those who aren't? I mean, palm oil is the one that everybody always hears about. That's the sort of the the red flag flying up there. But but it's a little. I think it's a little more complex than that. And maybe you could just touch on what what are those key issues, and then I'd like to to start talking about solutions. Yeah. Because um, it's. I think it's just. You know, we we every morning we get up. You know, and and we can find somewhere that we're being told that. It's all hell in a handbasket, and um, as as Meg said to me earlier today, you know, there's there's a dozen headlines that will tell you how much is being lost and how many of this species, mm -hmm. and you can just fill in the species. And but so let's talk briefly about what what the pressures are and what they're facing, and and then maybe really focus on the solutions. Yeah, yeah. So to, in a broader context, we need two things, and I call it two wings of the bird. We need the compassion and love to act the selfless action to, to help the world and others. But the other wing to the bird, we have to intelligently apply that love and action because indiscriminate charity causes more problems than it creates. This is why, you know, vast majority of charity money, you can mildly just throw it down the tube. Indiscriminate charity is, is not the solution. So we, we have to have the love and compassion, but we have to have the intelligence. Now, the classic example is, the first thing people think about when we're talking about orangutan conservation is palm oil. The reason being is you see a rainforest, you come back next year, now to the palm oil plantation. You go, well, okay, the real issue is palm oil. So if we ban palm oil, have sustainable palm oil, which is not true, you can't have sustainable palm oil, but let's pretend there's less destructive palm oil, then suddenly we will save the forest. But it's actually not true. Because it's not really understanding what's happening. It's not intelligently seeing the situation. The rainforest is just can be destroyed solely for the value of the trees alone, because trees are worth money. Your mother lied to you when she said money doesn't grow in trees. It does. It's, it's, it's very valuable. And so, so stopping palm oil will not stop the trees from disappearing. But businessmen are pretty intelligent. You know, once they have destroyed the trees and got money in their pockets, They'll plant a short-term crop for, for the most short-term profit and you know, that can exploit the environment past true cost production of power so they can reach themselves as quickly as possible. Now, if you came along and said, look, you can't plant palm oil, they always think, well, I can plant sugar palm, I can plant rubber, I can plant pulp paper. I have other options. So why would I leave profit sitting there when I have other options yeah so unless you address all those options um, you know you're not going to stop the deforestation not one tree being sold so you can have an anti-palm oil campaign when you're successful in 10 years time if there's any rainforest you can start the anti-rubby campaign then the anti you know and go on by that time you know you, you know, we're dead and the, the world is, is, is spiraled into extinction. Um, 
so it's not an intelligent way to approach the problem. The intelligent way to approach the problem is to address a particular driver, not addressing particular companies or, or particular products, but looking at each ecosystem, diagnosing the disease. And as a doctor looks at each patient, looks at each disease and prescribes the right medicine, the right dosage, you know, and, and solving the problem. That's intelligent conservation. Um, broad picture, simplistic solutions about the other being a problem are fantastic for marketing. And that's why, you know, it's, people want to do it because it's a great way to raise money and it's good marketing connects to people. And that's why politicians, you know, want to say, well, it's this country or this people or this group, which is a problem, you know, it's not us, <laughs> it's them. And everyone gets on board real quickly. Ah, oh, look, we finally get it. You know, it, it was the Jews which were destroying the German economy or the Mexicans or, or whatever, you know, because our human brain is very geared up to going, oh, a strong man's going to save us. And a strong man is, is identifying the external enemy with the short term solution. Yet we're on board. Um, and it's actually worked for our evolution. That's, you know, saved our asses in, you know, in our evolution on the savannah and the rainforest for, for generations, but it's pretty useless in the modern environment. And, 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 and so we have to go beyond you know, the instinctive way of, of and dealing with things and identifying problems to address them more intelligently. And unfortunately, we haven't got time to evolve and we haven't had time to evolve. You know, we're, we're basically hunters and gatherers misaligned um, to um, live in a post-industrial revolution environment. Yeah? And so we haven't had time to adapt. So we have to forgive ourselves and why we make these stupid decisions and we continue to make the stupid decisions. But for our own survival, it's imperative doesn't make that we, 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 we at least get out of this in the next 10 years and start intelligently applying solutions in, in the world. As, as you look at not only uh, we the orang the situation with orangutans in Borneo and Sumatra, but just in, even globally, it it seems like we're 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 approaching these problems with old brains, old linear thinking, and yet we have to have a more holistic, circular, if you will, mm. thinking approach to to solving these solutions. Mm. Where where are those stars of hope that we navigate by? Where are how do we how do we do this in in your mind? How do you do it? And and maybe you could even relate it to a little bit of you were talking about you know using this passion and love on one wing and intelligence on the other wing. How, how are you doing that? How is the orangutan project doing that in Sumatra as an example? Yeah, no, it's a very good question, and the answer is you know is, is in your question. It's love because you know we're not very good. Um, at, you know, intelligently applying our, ourselves to these sorts of problems. We're just not evolved to do that. Um, but there is an intelligence in love, you know, um, and, and understanding within love, which, which, which cannot be easily understood. So there's only one thing we need to do to solve the problems. It's to, it's to expand our love and consideration to all living beings on the planet, you know, you know, up to third of global warming is caused from the meat industry and overfishing, you know, and destroying cruelty to other living beings. You know, if we, we took up a um, plant-based diet, you know, and we stopped uh, hurting and exploiting others for the pleasure of the taste of their flesh, we will suddenly, um, you know, actually have a lot of global warming under control. If we care and love about our children, you know, and want to create a better planet, we'll stop having short-term exploitative subsidies <laughs> for fossil fuels, you know, um, for a few greedy people to allow future generations to have prosperity. If we save the rainforest with the indigenous communities and indigenous wildlife for their own sake, we will, we will mitigate, you know, another 20 to 30% of global warming, you know, and start rewilding the planet. Um, so if we just simply apply love, and compassion, you know, which is a win-win situation because if you love and have compassion to others, you become happy, you know, yourself. 
you know so this is not sacrifice at all as i'm trying to indicate so my 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 answer is how we overcome the the inherent problem with the way human thinking occurs is to develop a heart and love and those solutions will become more easy and more apparent and more effective. Hmm. I mean, it almost sounds like uh, the subtitle to your book, Finding Our Humanity. Yeah. Well, it, it, exactly, because, you know, the, the, all my books are, you know, obviously autobiographical in a way, but they're also telling a, a different story. And, and I guess you can categorize in some way finding humanity is, is the autobiographical spiritual journey. And the reason why I, I, I wrote that as compared to the other books is the understanding that originally thinking as a scientist, you know, coming from a scientific background, is lack of knowledge, you know, and application and skills or whatever is the problem and the solution. When it's not, it's empathy, <laughs> lack of empathy, you know, lack of connectiveness, um, um, inertia, you know, um, fear, all of these things are actually the real things which are stopping us from solving the problem. And so unless in my small way of connecting with people and, and trying to solve the problem, I address the real issues which are stopping us from getting there. Um, I'll be remiss in, in, in my, um, my duty um, to do the best I can uh, to save the orangutans, um, the other biodiversity, and do my part to um, mitigate climate change. How, how did orangutans connect you to your own humanity? One of the interesting things is, is um, and the wonderful thing that a lot of people experience when I take them on echo tours into the jungle to meet orangutans, is seeing the humanity where you least expect it. You know, is a wonderful um, experience. You know, and for me personally, starting to work with orangutans and un understanding that they're intelligent persons, um, it's a wonderful experience. You know, which expands your consciousness to to some extent. You suddenly, you know, you're here and you're all actually this this consciousness. You know, and this and this intelligent expression of, of uh, love in the universe is far more expansive and that in itself is, is a wonderful experience but in addition to that i've found in the orangutan's eyes a more noble form of humanity you know um you know and the the example i give is you know we killed over a million orangutans you know macheted them burning them alive shooting their eyes out uh, most horrific way. And although they're seven to ten times stronger than human beings, there's not one recorded case in a sanctuary, a zoo, or in a wild orangutan ever killing a human being, even though the male's got teeth like tigers, canines like tigers. They don't seem to have that kill switch, you know, where a human being in the right environment, and this is why you have war crimes, because you basically have these male hunting parties where for evolution, they designed them to switch off, you know, murder and, and pillage you know and with, and with you know as part of their survival strategy um and so we have this kill switch we can switch off this is why you know you go to any war situation there's always war crimes because you get this tribal hunting party mentality that comes into place and chimpanzees have the same thing chimpanzees can rip off the genitals and faces off their foes and you know it's, it's all fun and games you know um Orangutans don't seem to have that. They just don't seem to have the ability. So they may fight for resources and you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but they never do anything simply try to destroy or intentionally hurt another because they don't seem to be able to disconnect their humanity um, from others such as we can. The word humanity, I know what you mean. By using it, and I and I think I know what most of us mean when we use it. Do we need to find another way to express that? Are by using humanity, are we making a mistake? Are we are we saying to people, if it if we can show you the humanity there, the humanness there, there we're saving their value valuable. If we can't, they don't have a value just intrinsically as themselves. I know. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, it's just not how I'm using the term, and I'm trying to use a term in which the audience most 
understands. So I'm talking that in the language of the culture right time. Um, so I'm not trying to um, culturally construct a new a new way of talking. That's not my role. Is you know others who who may want to do that. My role is to talk in, in a language which the audience um, can understand. And so that's why I use humanity in that context. But you know I, I agree with you that um, you know there's something deeper because. Often the argument is, oh, we should protect orangutans and chimpanzees because they share 97% or 99% of genes with us. Who gives a crap? Is, is, that, is, is the relatedness to us inherently, you know, i.e. closer to us? But that's where our tribal brain gets to, <laughs> the us and them. The more genetically similar to us, more likely we're going to protect you. This is how the human brain works. But that's the reality is, is that's not the reason we, we, we protect others. And, um, you know, um, the reason we protect others is because they suffer, you know, and um, and they have intrinsic value as, as persons, you know, and it's personhood beyond the human species. You know, and and to to recognize that is is fine. I'm suggesting finding humanity, our own humanity as in humane, but finding the humanity, how we describe humanity um, beyond the, the human species. And we have to do that. Um, that's part of, as I described, with how we exploit animals, which are destroying our planet, um, and how we destroy other humans, which are destroying our planet. We have to find our humanity, um, and it's beyond the human species in order to survive. Hmm. When when you do your your eco tours um, and you take people in and, and somebody is is never seen an orangutan before I mean obviously they've seen pictures or something and they're motivated to go with you to, to see them what what are what are the first reactions that you notice out of people when they first encounter orangutans mm-hmm. well there's, there's a few things that happen uh, on the eco tours one is um, they're out of the comfort zone and that actually creates a unique opportunity where they're open to new experiences. So you get the serendipity. Um, the second thing is they're back in the rainforest, which is kind of back to home. And there's a sense of oneness and connectedness, which is which can be surprising um, to, to, to many people. Um, the, 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 the second, third aspect is beauty. I mean, seeing the orangutan in the zoo, you see an ugly caricature of these magnificent persons. It's like seeing people in prison, or you know, and going, "Yeah, that's how that's how people act, and that's how they associate with each other." No, <laughs> that's how you know that's how they react when they're taken out of the environment and, and put in, in in confinement. You know, but when you see an orangutan in its natural environment, evolving free, there's this wonderful beauty. And this wonderful connection, and then you know I, I do these um, talks every night, which which you know which connects people at a deeper level. That there's a there's a scientific journey, there's a spiritual journey, and that sort of stuff. And so what people get out the end of it is a serendipitous, beautiful connection with others through the orangutans, but beyond humanity. And so, again, it's a win-win situation, you know. And this is a wonderful thing. This, you know, so two things that happen is well, we make money to help save the orangutans. We connect people at a deeper level and we help them, you know. Um, and then they become more selfless and happier and they give more. And so you get this wonderful continuation of a win win experience. Um, and that's what it's all about. And part of the reason I'm right finding humanity is in that context. When I'm talking to an audience, I'm not there, you know, like some sort of, you know, self-help guru, <laughs> you know, selling him some, you know, get rich quick scheme. You know, I'm there to, you're not there to exploit them. Doesn't make sense to get money to save my precious orangutans. It's 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 a win-win solution. You know, if I can make people happier, more loving, and more selfish, and all those things are the same thing and interconnected then they're benefited, you know, and that expression uh, of love and selflessness then hopefully reflect back into saving the planet, including the orangutans. So these are all win-win solutions if we have the ability to expand our consciousness and mind beyond our tribal paradigm and be able to see it. 
I, I, I guess that leads me to one last question, um, and that is one which I, I know you've heard before, but I, I guess I'm asking it in a couple of different contexts. One is one that the journey that you just took us on, uh, you know, as being those folks who who went and saw an orangutan for the first time, and the the other is from the context of being one of eight billion people on this planet. Some would say that you know if orangutans disappeared, yeah, I, I live in Iceland. If they disappeared tomorrow, you know where I'm going with this question. What difference does it make, A, and why should I care? And if I do care, what is it that I do on a daily basis as an individual, or is it impossible for an individual to have that impact? I mean, you you are an individual. You have made an enormous impact in the lives of the orangutans, of the biodiversity of these forests, of these forests in general. Um, so you're living proof that an individual can make a difference, but it hasn't been a road that you've taken on your own. So let's let's back up to the original part of the question. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's no. It's a great question. One is I would say we have to reform ourselves to reform the world. So we find that love and beauty within ourselves, and you can only find it within ourselves. It may be difficult to find happiness within ourselves, but it's impossible to find outside. We find that love and compassion. We will express that naturally. So you, you want to help the world. You've got this love, doesn't make sense. You just got to get it out. You just got to intelligently express it somehow. So that's where, you know, the intelligent action comes into place. But there's also this flip side. You can kind of actually fake it till you make it. You know, if people go out and act selflessly, they actually become more happier. It's a bit like we know that if you smile, doesn't make sense. Just fake it for a while. You actually become happier. <laughs> you know, there's kind of fake it to make it kind of thing. So, so. You know, why are you going to help? Well, you're going to help to help yourself. You know, it's a win-win situation. So, you know, if you, you know, become happier and, and more prosperous and, and you will, will you know, you, you will help others. The next part is, look, yeah, I think we've been sold this, this line, basically, from the people who are getting rich quick at this point on the planet. Um, with the, think globally, act locally, you know, you know, change the way you live your lifestyle. You know, and then the planet will be changed. Act as an individual. And I'm not saying, you know, going palm oil free and acting um, with integrity as an individual isn't important. It is important for your own spiritual growth. But are you going to change the world? No. Right. Humans can only succeed. And the only reason we have been successful is we can collectivize. And we're, we're the best collectivizing species on, on the planet. The example is, for example, if you want to earn a little bit of money, get yourself a job, right? You're never going to be rich, but you're, you're going to be okay, you know? If you want to earn a lot of money, you collectivize capital into a company, right? And you have the capacity, right? Um, now, it's the same with conservation, you know? Um, you know, as an individual, I can, you know, go, join a hippie commune, go, you know, organic and veggie and that sort of stuff and say, hey, I'm not destroying the planet, you know, I'm wonderful, it's all you buggers you know that's just ego right and and it's not about me it's not about my skill my only skill is the ability to collectivize i surround myself with wonderful people who are far more intelligent than myself you know and and with wonderful commitment and that's why there's success nothing to do with me other than my ability to collectivize supplement my ego to the greater cause yeah and and work well with others and you see in conservation all over time because we don't reform ourselves while we're tr trying to reform the world. And you see so many times conservationists, they're trying to save the planet, right? But they are secretly after name, reputation, money, power. Does that make sense? And they end up fighting against all the other NGOs and all the other people. And, you know, it's like, honestly, it, people come to conservation and they go, I thought it was all a bunch of beautiful people, you know, singing Kumbaya, working together and all fighting each other and backstabbing each other. You know, yeah, that's, that's, that's what's happening. And, of course, the reality is, though, is I love them all. And I can see the pain in, in their hearts, you know, and I feel compassion for them. I just have to work around them. 
you know, and set an example, does it make sense, of, of, of selfless love, you know, and you become happy and, and you can work together with others for an ultimate cause. So, so that's kind of um, w- w- why there's, you know, success, collectivization, an expression of selfless love intelligently through the world. I I had a friend who once uh, was, she had been many years in the conservation business and she said, you know, if we could just get people to leave their logos and egos at the door, we might get something done. Yeah, I, I know. It's kind of like, you know, I get, I often, you know, when I you do these talks and I'm at, you know, they say, oh, you know, you must be so proud of the orangutan project, the international elephant tiger project and all you've done. I don't give a shit about these things, honestly. You know, <laughs> they're actually legal fictions. They don't really exist. It's like countries, <laughs> you know, or companies. They don't exist. They're just fictions, you know. They're just vehicles that I'm using, it doesn't make sense, to effect a meaningful change to, to what is real. And that's a conscious expression to living beings, yeah, and the compassion for the suffering that they're feeling. It's just... It's just a means to an end. But what happens is it's our tribal mind. It doesn't make sense, you know. So a lot of people, they oh, the orangutan project, that's my tribe now. So when, you know, the orangutan fund down the road is competing, no, that's a real enemy, you know. It's not the people destroying the forest. It's the orangutan fund who's going to get our donors and money and the grant money. So they spend all their focus. And that, that's a tribal brain just switching in, you know, and identifying with the tribe and that sense of connectedness in a small tribal way. But what I'm positing is we have to expand it, doesn't make sense, go beyond the tribal mind. That's why I'm always pretty keen to always tell my staff and volunteers, get them out of the shock. I don't care about the orangutan project. You know, you know, if you, you if if you know I, my greatest wish in the world is I will close it because it's no longer required. You know, it's, it's a useless organization because orangutans are all safe, living in viable populations and secure habitat. Let's get rid of this thing called the orangutan project and please help me become unemployed. Yeah, it, it's funny because I, I once uh, was talking to somebody at one of the very large global NGOs and I said, so what is your exit strategy? And they looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> they, they, like, like, what do you mean exit strategy? I, I said, well, if you... Don't you have a, a plan to succeed and then you're out of business? Uh, and it was just like it, – it's like they were stunned with the concept. How can we ever be out of business? Well, they it, just accept they are. Well, it's one of those psychological things which is blow the subconscious, not saying that they're consciously aware of this. Remember, you know, Superman's best friend is Lex Luthor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the reason is yes. <laughs> from a psychological perspective, you can't be a superhero without a supervillain. This is why, you know, conservationists spend more time fighting each other than companies. So if I want to save the world, right, and be the hero, I need someone destroying the world. So I need them. I'm in a symbiotic relationship with them. But the guy who also wants to save the world, I'm in competition with them. So I've got to get rid of that guy because, you know, I'm the one saving the world, you know. And so you actually find, and this is why you often get, you know, destructive businesses and these big NGOs are actually have a very good partnership. Well, you destroy the planet, we save it. It's kind of working out really well for both of us here. And then all we've got to get rid of these other NGOs, which are competing with us. You know? And it you know, all is going to be really fantastic. Um, yeah, it, so it, it, this, and I'm not saying they're consciously aware of this, but, but that's unfortunately the, the thing. And so when someone says, you know, actually, you know, we've got to get out of that, it, it takes a, it's going to take a little bit of time, does make sense, till that percolate. And, and the problem is, we can't criticize the people who are in that paradigm because we, if, if we get criticized, we get hurt and we just seek to strengthen, does it make sense, our current position, does it make sense? And especially if we're in this little cult and we're all in little cults, if we're in the big, this cult, you know, all our friends and all our colleagues say, yeah, we're right. It's Zach, no, he's stupid to say that, you know what I mean? Because, you know, we're all in these kind of little cults because we've evolved in our evolution, um, it's been more important to agree and keep group cohesion than being right. That's how our brain thinks. So we're going to believe all sorts of stupid things if that's what the tribal narrative tells us to do. And so um, only way we can do that is provide the information without criticism and provide a loving environment for people to change, does that make sense, in a safe way. 
Other, otherwise, this is why you don't find you know the orangutan pros going criticizing other NGOs and people. Doesn't make sense. One is because we love them. You know, who, they're not outside of a field of compassion and love. But but we know criticizing it makes us feel good because inherently criticizing anybody else is that you're superior. Does that make sense? That's the that's the paradigm. You know, so we're not superior. But what we want to do is, is, is have the facts and the environment to allow people to change. You know? um, and that's how I think we're going to make meaningful change um, in the conservation world. Well, it's interesting that you say that because it's just it was just over, I guess, it's almost two months ago now that both the Indonesian and Malaysian governments sort of uh, teamed up to to uh, hire outside PR firms to fight the sort of the push against the palm oil industry. They they felt it was necessary to to uh, create their own PR campaigns in the EU and other places to fight this what they saw as an attack. So that tribalism, you know, is in full force. It, it is. And so, I mean, in a broader problem is, in general, we've lost our democracies to big business interests. You know, politicians will do what their funders tell them to do, not what their voters tell them to do. Because if you've got enough funds, you can tell get the voters to vote for you. And so we've lost control. And so we have these vested interests. In America, the example, the fossil fuels and pharmacies and whatnot, doesn't make sense. They, they control government decision-making. Um, you know, and their vested interest uh, is what drives politicians' decision-making. But also they, um, they're in the same group, you know, if that makes sense. They socialize together. They're the same people. And so they're in that cult. So it's not that these politicians are going, yeah, yeah, we're doing the dirty on them because we're getting money from the palm oil, um, from the palm oil, the oil industry. Well, they're getting money, but they also think they're doing a good thing, and 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 their mates and their tribes are getting rich, and it's all wonderful. So it's not at a conscious level, you know. So you know, it's at a subconscious level um, where where you know the government is subliminal influence, that, you know, and, and connection both outright bribery to you know just. Um, it, the company's intelligently uh, applying the tribal mind and connectedness with, with the politicians. And so it's no surprise, um, you know, that governments then do the bidding, doesn't make sense, of their funders, in this case, supporting the palm oil industry, even though the facts would be, is, you know, the palm oil industry is going to leave Indonesia and Malaysia economic basket case in 50, 60 years where these unsustainable monocultures collapse and the people will be starving. And really, they need to move away from these unsustainable monocultures now in order for the prosperity of. Um, but, you know, in their group, you know, where they all associate together um, and even get conservationists who, you know, join these group industry organizations, they're all friends now and they, they, they buy into, you know, the, the, the collective lie, you know. Um, and and the, and they and they move forward. So you even might find conservationists supporting some of these things because all of a sudden they they become part of this collective delusion. Well, on that note, I want to thank you and let you get back to your tribe because you're just starting your day there. So I'm sure your tribe is is wanting to talk to you and needing you. And and thanks for talking to the the little tribe that we're trying to build here of talking apes. Uh, Leaf, this has been I know it's been kind of wide ranging, and but I really appreciate your thoughts and um, just your insights and uh, and I'd love to have you back on sometime when we can pursue some other ideas. We didn't talk a lot about the orangutan project specifically, and I know there's some things that you're doing in uh, Sumatra that I would love to touch on and and share with folks. So maybe we can get you yeah. back. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. The main thing is with, with saving complete ecosystem with the right type, shape, and size of forests to take orangutans and other biodiversity through the extinction crisis. And it's a wonderful way that we're offering people the opportunity to collectivize, you know, and make a meaningful impact in the world. And we've got the next 10 years to do this. So this is, um, we're not only going to um, save these ecosystems, but we'll hopefully provide people a wonderful opportunity. Does that make sense? to make a meaningful impact in the world and at the same time becoming happier. And and if they want to collectivize with you, how do they how do they find you? Um, they can go to our website, theorangutanproject.org, and there's you know, 
there's many ways to donate, adopt orangutans and, and save forest. Um, and in addition, you know, um, to, to donations, you know, because we're all living off the wealth of our grandchildren, putting some back to save the future of the planet is all wonderful. But many people um, who don't have a lot of money collectivize in their own areas to run quiz nights and events, you know, and, and, and make just a powerful impact um, using the labor rather than the money. Once again, I'd like to thank Leif Cox for his humanist perspective on being a great ape. It may be the single quality that ends up saving all apes like us. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work in putting together another great podcast of Talking Apes. And finally, thank you. The Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with a tax-deductible donation to Globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.